Do those words do anything in your soul? The curse is broken. I'm clothed in Jesus' righteousness. Amen? Amen. There are some truths that we will never graduate from. We will come together week after week until the Lord takes us home or he comes back and we will declare those truths together. I'm not a huge baseball fan, but one thing that has always uh, captivated me about baseball specifically, all major sports do this, but every spring, every baseball player in the major leagues goes to spring training. The rookies, the MVPs, all of them, they go to either Arizona or Florida and they do the basics. They practice batting and throwing and fielding. They do the basics every year. Our SCAD students who take drawing classes will draw the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. They're assigned, hey, come back next, next week with 500 sketches, just doing it over and over and over again, practicing shading and perspective, the basics. Sometimes we want to move on from the basics. Sometimes we think that there's some higher level of knowledge that would really help us and really be practical in our day-to-day walk. But brothers and sisters, it's the basics that sustain us from day to day. It doesn't take much time hanging around our church to know that we hold the Word of God in the highest esteem. But I don't want to take that for granted. I don't want to take for granted that we may have a visitor with us this morning that this is your first time in a church building and you maybe have never considered the truths of Christianity. I don't want to take for granted that we may have someone who has sat in one of these pews for years and maybe is having thoughts and questions that they would be too scared to ask out loud. How do we know all this stuff is true? So today our passage takes us back to the basics. We need to know why we're here and what we're doing and what kind of a book this is. Scripture contains truths that are sometimes hard for us to believe. We need to remember the reason for our confidence in that truth. John starts his first epistle. We're in 1 John this morning, verses 1 to 4. And he cuts right to the chase. John is reminding the churches of the source and authority of his teaching and admonishments and exhortations. Jesus Christ is the incarnate Son of God, divine and human. And John has the authority to to teach on such a big, grand, beautiful doctrine because he's got one piece of evidence that he can cling to, namely his eyes and ears. He is an eyewitness to the life and ministry and teachings of Jesus. What he witnessed and what the apostles witnessed was God in the flesh. The reality of the incarnate Christ changes everything. Two natures in one person, 
human and divine. That's a lot to take in. It's hard to grasp. And maybe there's another question that even comes to your mind besides just, how is that possible? And it's, why would God, three in one, the Trinity, and in Christ, two natures in one person, human and divine, why would God entrust such an incomprehensible truth to his ragtag band of followers, former fishermen, to be the ones to teach the world and and testify to the world about such huge, grand, almost incomprehensible truths. Why would God do things this way? We're going to see that this, in fact, is how the Lord has worked throughout human history, redemptive history. This is who He is. Our God is the God who tells us about Himself. He tells us that He sent His Son to be the incarnate Christ. And then He sent His apostles into the world at this moment in redemptive history to tell the world about Him. He makes Himself known, and most often He does that by using the people to whom He has made Himself known to make Himself known to other people. If you would stand with me in honor of the reading of our sermon text this morning, this is 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Hear the word of the Lord. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Father, we praise you that the curse is broken. We ask that you would help us now by your Holy Spirit to illumine to us these spiritual truths. This book is so much more than a book, paper, and ink. There are spiritual realities here, and we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Would you help us? Would you open our ears to see the power and the beauty and the unity of your word? I ask all of this in the name of the incarnate Christ Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. I have three points this morning. Point number one, God made known. Point number two, the word made flesh. And point number three, witnesses making witnesses. Point number one, God made known. 
There's much about God that is unknowable for us. But what we need to know, God has told us. I think one of the most important words in our passage this morning is the word manifest. It happens twice in verse 2. The life was made manifest. The eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. To manifest is to reveal, to make known, to show, to appear, to disclose. The God of the Bible is a personal absolute. Christians see the Bible, and from it we see that God is a personal absolute. He is absolutely powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent. But he is, though separate from his creation in, in in those ways, he has made himself known to his creation because he is also personal. We understand this as image bearers. We are very relational. And that's because we bear his image as a relational being. This is actually fairly unique among the world's religions. It's easy for us to think of a divine being either personal or absolute. The Greek gods were very personal, but they didn't have all power. It was very messy. Many religions around the world, many Eastern religions, pantheistic, panentheistic religions, believe in an absolute power, but it's very impersonal. Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, many New Age beliefs believe in some force, but it's difficult to know what that force is thinking or doing. In our postmodern world that we live in, this has been really embraced as the culture in that how can we even know what objective truth is. And so there's an old Buddhist parable that has become quite the, the common thought of the day, where there's a few blind men who are feeling an elephant for the first time, and depending on what part of the elephant, they're describing the elephant in different ways. Oh, an elephant is like a tree, because that blind man is feeling the leg. Or an elephant is like a spear, because that blind man is feeling the tusk. Or a snake, that blind man is feeling the trunk. The Christian worldview is fundamentally fundamentally different because the elephant can talk. As finite creation, we need the infinite creator to describe himself to us. Yes, we know that our perspective is subjective. We know that it is limited. We understand our limits. But God has spoken to us and described himself to us. And so it is not arrogant to say that we can understand what objective truth is. He has manifested himself to us. And we'll we'll come back to this a little later, but I just want to highlight that the way that he has most often done that is through human language. As being image bearers, we are unique among creation in that we have language. We can communicate with one another. 
It's been affected by the fall. It's been confused at the Tower of Babel. But human beings are distinct from creation in that we have language that we share with one another. And so there is an absolute, all-powerful being that he has spoken to us in words that we can understand. Sometimes that has been uh, orally, audibly, but most often it has been in written language. And again, we'll come, we'll come back to that at the end. God has told us what he is like. There were some who lived during Jesus' time who knew what to be looking for in the Messiah because God had told them what to be looking for. God has manifested himself to us. He has made himself known. And that manifestation already is personal, as we've discussed, but it doesn't get much more personal than for this brief 33 years in human history when God himself took on human flesh. God has most clearly manifested himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Point number two, the word made flesh. I want to go back to verse number one of our passage. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard. This echoes the language that John uses in his gospel, in John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We know that that language echoes the language of Genesis, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. So right away, we are hitting that, okay, this Jesus was God. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. In John 1, 14, it says that the Word became flesh. And I want us to meditate on this for just a moment. John didn't use the word God there, God became flesh. The Word became flesh. Divine nature was not changed into flesh. The Father was not made flesh. The entire Trinity was not made flesh. John specifically describes the incarnation of one divine person, the Word, Jesus, the Son of God. That word flesh could point to Jesus' physical body, but more broadly, it points to humanity. The Word became flesh. Joel Beek and Paul Smalley write, flesh connotes man's weakness, futility, and inability to produce the life of God's kingdom. John's statement is surprising, even shocking, for he brings together the eternal and omnipotent Word with frail and mortal humanity. Looking back at 1 John, the life, the Word of life was made manifest. The second century church father Irenaeus describes the incarnation as the invisible becoming visible, the incomprehensible becoming comprehensible and the impassable becoming capable of suffering. 
This is a glorious, glorious doctrine. How did did the Word become flesh? Many modern rationalists and liberal theologians are quick to challenge the doctrine of the virgin birth. But there's a specific reason why the virgin birth is cited in all of the early church creeds, all church confessions, all of the early church fathers write about the importance of the virgin birth. Wayne Grudem writes, the virgin birth was a very wise means to signal the entrance of the incarnate Son into the world. If God had created the human nature of Jesus without him being conceived and born of a human mother, then it would be more difficult for us to conceive, sorry, it would be more difficult for us to believe that Christ is truly human. If God had brought forth Jesus by the ordinary union of a man and a woman, then it would be difficult for us to believe that Christ is truly God. He would seem merely human. However, Jesus' virgin birth from a human mother illustrates both his deity and humanity. In Galatians 4.4, Paul writes, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, not through a woman, as if Mary were simply some passive vehicle. At Jesus' conception, the pre-existent, eternal Son of God took on a human nature from the substance of his human mother. It's the basics, but it's so rich and so glorious. The Athanasian Creed says, we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and human equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. And he is human from the essence of his mother, born in time. Completely God, completely human. With a rational soul and human flesh. Equal to God as regards divinity, less than God as regards humanity. Although he is God and human, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one, however, not by his divine being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. He is one, certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. For just as one human is both rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and human. I think that analogy is helpful. We can understand as human beings being body and soul, two substances with unique properties in one person. However, that analogy can only go so far because even our souls are finite parts of creation. In the doctrine of the incarnation, we have the eternal, omnipotent God taking on a human nature that is temporal and finite.
It's amazing. What a glorious truth. The apostles saw Jesus in the flesh. They heard his voice. They touched him. And they testify to us this reality. As hard as it might be to understand, there is mystery to it. But they testify that even though it is mysterious, it is true. Jesus really got tired. He really had to go to sleep when he was tired. And yet when he was woken up by scared disciples because of a storm, he spoke to the storm and calmed it. He experienced the full human experience. He could have healed his friend Lazarus from a distance. He didn't. He waited until he had died, and he goes to the tomb and he weeps. He experienced the full bitterness and loss that we know living in a fallen and broken world. But then he reminds us that he is the resurrection and the life. And he manifested that by saying, Lazarus, come out. He ate and drank with his disciples because he's human. But he broke bread and passed a cup around saying, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. This is my blood given for you because he is more than just human. Jesus is God and man because he is the mediator between God and man. That office requires complete humanity and divinity. Hebrews 2 says that he is not ashamed to call us brothers because he partook of the same flesh and blood that we share. Later in Hebrews, it says that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Joel Beek again writes that God's holiness and righteousness requires blood sacrifice if there's to be forgiveness for our sins. By Christ's incarnate work in our flesh and blood, believers may now draw near to God and dwell in his holy presence as citizens of the heavenly city rather than face his terrifying wrath. On Golgotha, the disciples were eyewitness to the preeminent moment of Jesus' humanity. He died. The God of life died. But only a few days later, they saw the God of life made manifest when they saw, heard, and touched the hands and feet and side of the risen Savior. Thomas touched his side and said, My Lord and my God. His humanity and divinity existing in one person are what allow us to be fully, completely unified to our God. 
John Murray writes that if it was not, it, sorry, it was not absolutely necessary that God save sinners, but consequent upon his willing to save them, it was absolutely necessary that the Son become incarnate and die. John Calvin wrote, This is the wonderful exchange, which out of his measureless benevolence he has made with us, that becoming son of man with us, he has made us sons of God with him. By his descent to earth, he has prepared an ascent to heaven for us. By taking on our mortality, he has conferred his immortality upon us. By accepting our weakness, he has strengthened us by his power. By receiving our poverty unto himself, he has transferred his wealth to us. By taking the weight of our iniquity upon himself, which oppressed us, he has clothed us with his righteousness. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Hark the herald, angels sing. Glory to the newborn King. This is a glorious, mysterious truth. And so we come back to the question I asked at the beginning. Is it strange that this is how we're learning about this glorious truth? I got a degree in, like, camera stuff and film, and I'm up here teaching you about these former fishermen who wrote some stuff down about a God who is three persons in one being, one of those persons being divine and human? Yes, that's what we're doing here. <laughs> Point number three, witnesses making witnesses. It is in God's wisdom that he, and it's his pleasure, that he has revealed himself most often the regular normative way that he reveals himself to his people is through the written word. John writes, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. Look at all the plural pronouns that Paul uses, or excuse me, John uses in this paragraph. We, we heard it, we have seen it, we touched him. The life was made manifest to us. We testify to it, we proclaim to you, churches. God is doing more than just saving you. This is difficult for us as Americans in the 21st century. It's very easy for us to come to the Word of God and think only about ourselves. 
But by nature, this very document was not written to us, but for us. It was written for the people of God throughout time. The word of life was not just made manifest to one guy somewhere one time. That's how a lot of cults get started. God has always been in the business of drawing a people to himself. This was no different in the the pinnacle of redemptive history and having the incarnate Christ be witnessed by people who would then write down their testimony to testify to it. God's word is able to go to a corporate people and it's preserved throughout time. It was one of the earliest technologies that could capture something that a later generation could go back and see what happened. And it's still that way today. We can still trust the eyewitness testimony of someone even if they have gone before us. The claims that the apostles and the prophets in the Old Testament made were not just moral claims. They were documenting history. And so in our morally relativistic day that we live in, it's very common to talk about your truth and my truth. And that's true for you, but it might not be true for me. That's fine if you're talking about like, well, it's not fine, but it's one thing to be talking about that in terms of morality. That fundamentally does not apply to historical statements. To say that Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address at Gettysburg is not true for me, but not for you. It's a historical claim that is either true or not. The apostles saw something. They heard something. They touched someone. And they are testifying to us that he is God and man, the great high priest, the good shepherd, the son of David. Just as the bronze serpent was lifted up, so too is the son of man lifted up. He's the son of man that Daniel talked about. He is the fulfillment of all of the promises we have in the Old Testament. Do you see the power and the beauty and the unity of God's word to his people? This week I have spent so much time with many brothers who have gone before us, early church fathers, who were dealing with many of the same things we deal with today and some of the same challenges that the Apostle John was wrestling with. Irenaeus, Ignatius, Justin Martyr, uh, Anselm, Augustine, Athanasius. They were all wrestling with, with people who were trying to break the tension in their minds between God and man being in one person. And I was 
greatly comforted to see brothers who have gone before us wrestling with the same issues and speaking the same truths consistently. Those brothers are great, but you know what they are not is eyewitnesses. They came after the eyewitnesses. They, they, in answering the challenges of their day, appealed again and again to what the eyewitnesses wrote down. This is a spiritual endeavor. We need the Spirit's help to see the beauty of everything that I've said this morning and what we've seen in these words. Paul writes in Titus chapter 1, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Church, if reading your Bible is just a means of being a better person or checking off a list as a, as a good habit, or if it's just to learn intellectual facts, then you will eventually be disappointed. You'll feel like a failure. And you may learn some stuff, but you might leave with a heart unchanged. But if this Bible... If these words written down for us is how we know God, if it's how the God who made all things and is sustaining and governing all things wants to introduce himself to us relationally and wants to teach us about his character, that changes everything. We need the Holy Spirit's help to see the power and the beauty of these words. The doctrine of the Incarnation is not just a thought experiment to talk about with people who like philosophy. It is a truth statement that Jesus is Lord. As God-man, He is the perfect Savior. He is the one who is able to unify us with our God. If we have Christ, then we have all things. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your written word. We come to so many specific moments in our lives, challenges and trials where in our limitation, we just want you to speak specifically to our our trials. 
We want help in making hard decisions. When we're dealing with the day-in, day-out challenges of life, it can be hard in our flesh to know what these big, beautiful truths mean for us when we're just trying to get through the workday, trying to parent our kids, when we're feeling lonely. But thank you that you have spoken and shared with us all that we need. All that we need for life and godliness is given to us in Christ and in your word. Would you help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to live out in faith the truths that we have heard today as we continue to go through the epistles of John over the coming weeks and months? Would you continue to reveal to us our beautiful Savior? And would you make us, your people, your corporate people, look more like him to a lost and dying world? The incarnate physical hands and feet of Jesus ascended to heaven and are seated at the right hand of the Father. That is a mystery to us. We don't exactly know how that works, but we read it and we trust it. And we trust that when you left your word entrusted to the apostles and now to your church today, that that was in your wisdom and good pleasure, that we might be the incarnate hands and feet of Christ today, able to minister to one another and to a lost and dying world. Would you motivate us by the power of the Holy Spirit, again, to walk in faith and to fall more deeply in love with our Savior who took on our flesh, gave his life for us, and now lives that we might live in him. It's in his glorious name that I pray, amen.